The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're absolutely in the right place. Today's buzz, money can't buy you love. No, I'm not going to burst out into song. Let's just leave that lyric on the table for right now. Let's get started. As the complexity of workforce challenges deepens, and you know it is if you're an employer, even if you're an employee, so will the demand for quantitative approaches to address the people-related questions that are central to your organization's simplification which now is defined as a measure and a road to success. So our key words here are people-related questions and workforce challenges. That's what I want to leave you with. So according to research in 2014, just last year, by Oxford Economics and SAP, listen up, employees want higher compensation. That's where I got the line, money can't buy you love. But they also want more career opportunities. So the question on the table today is, how is your company keeping your valued talent engaged but not just needing to keep them engaged. You need to measure their performance against the right kinds of metrics. And even more important, perhaps, you need to incentivize them to help you achieve your company goals. That's a lot to achieve. Keep them happy. Measure how they're doing. Let them know. Motivate and incentivize them to be on the track your business needs to achieve. We have a panel of experts helping us figure this all out. And by the way, the title of the episode today is, Are Your Metrics and Incentives Rewarding Complexity or Simplification? Very, very important question. First up, I'm delighted to welcome Nathan Sloan. He's a newcomer to Game Changers Radio. Nathan is a principal in Deloitte Consulting's Human Capital Practice. And he sent me a quote from, let's see, the character is Terrence Fletcher. Anybody scratching your heads? He was the brilliant jazz instructor at the fictional Schaefer Conservatory of Music in New York. He was played by J.K. Simmons. Everybody know the movie reference? It was Whiplash from last year. What a movie. What a, well, actually, uh, J.K. Simmons is spoken of as a high up contender for an Oscar for this role. And here's the quote. I was there to push people beyond what's expected of them, an absolute necessity. Otherwise, we're depriving the world of the next Louis Armstrong. Nathan Sloan, great quote, great movie. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing well, Bonnie. Thank you very much. Um, Thanks for joining us. Tell me, had, yeah, go yeah. ahead. I don't know what it was about this movie uh, that moved me, but I'll tell you what, I, I rarely buy movies. I'm usually renting the movies, and this is the first one that I've purchased in a long time. And um, maybe it's the former musician in me. Maybe it's the, uh, the message that it sends that's you know, similar to, to Dead Poet Society, which is another great movie that I love. Um, but it's, it's about pushing people towards greatness, 
right? And, and it also sends the message that there could be a line. You could push people too far. Um, you know, part of the part of the quote and the story that J.K. Simmons is telling is about how uh, there's a there's another musician uh, that Charlie Parker would never have become Charlie Parker if Joe Jones had not threw a symbol at his head during a cut session. Now, don't get me wrong. If I went around throwing symbols at people's heads, I probably wouldn't be at Deloitte very long. Um, but, I, you know, I think there's an important message here around how do we push people to perform? How do we push people to greatness? And there's, there's two pieces of this quote that I think are really applicable to our conversation today. One is around um, do people know what's ex- expected of them? Are we doing a good job articulating uh, to, our, to our teams what we expect them to do and perform on a daily basis? Uh, the other piece of this, which is really around uh, pushing people to being leaders, could be people leaders, organizational leaders. When I, when I think about uh, the work that we do, the work I do um, as, as a leader at Deloitte and some of the conversations we're having with clients, it's really about getting high performance right, from our people, mm-hmm. our teams, and our organizations. And I think too many times we lose sight of that and, and think that talking about it is good enough. Um, and uh, especially around some of the work that we've been doing and and looking at performance management and reinventing that inside the firm, um, the process isn't really, um, it's not just the process itself, right? It's about how do you get the most out of your teams? Um, Then I'd say um, it's really, you know, if we're not doing that, it's not working, and and we truly are depriving ourselves of, of potential greatness within our company. So... Uh, Bonnie, thanks again for having me, and uh, if you haven't seen the movie, I would highly recommend it. Thank you. As a matter of fact, very interesting, Nathan. It's already available on demand free. I get I get a channel called Stars, S-T-A-R-Z, and one called Encore here on Optimum in New York. And I noticed that Whiplash was already up as a free movie for the next couple of weeks, and I was surprised. Oh, there you it have was, it. I was surprised it was there already. I'm kind of afraid to see it because I saw the trailer several times, and it looks violent. But your point is, points are so well taken. And, and one of the questions, Nathan, I think is when people onboard to a company in any role, do they realize what they are expected to do? Not just file these reports, come in at 9, leave at 5, uh, don't take more than 28 minutes for lunch, be nice to your colleagues, uh, make sure your reports are on time, show up for meetings. Do they realize that there is a higher level of purpose to being part of that organization and that every day counts, every workday counts toward helping the company be successful? And I'm not sure people really get that. Do you think that, that employees across the board everywhere really understand that they're part of something a heck of a lot bigger than just their paycheck, Nathan? Yeah, I think it definitely varies company to company. You know, we found that um, there's a a question on our engagement survey that we do within Deloitte around, um, is the mission of the firm inspiring to me? And it's Mm. one of the top drivers of engagement at the organization. And what's, what's interesting is even though it's a top driver for engagement, we also see it vary. We see the scores vary across the teams. So what that says to me is, even though we're all working for the same organization, the experience that we have at the local level within our teams or on our departments varies. And so there's a role for our managers to play around clarifying those expectations and educating people before they join, but also making sure they have a positive experience at the organization. 
Thank you very much, Nathan. And again, welcome to our show. And let's go on to our second guest. Well, he's been here before. It's Eric Lesser, Research Director and North American Leader for the IBM Institute for Business Value, abbreviated as IBV. And Eric has sent me this time a quote from Lawrence A. Bossidy, B-O-S-S-I-D-Y, businessman and author. And if you're not familiar with Bossidy's name, he's a retired CEO of Allied Signal. And in addition, he spent more than 30 years, according to Wikipedia, rising into executive power at GE. I thought that was interesting, not as an executive, but rising into executive power. Love that. And here's the quote. At the end of the day, you bet on people, not on strategies. That's exactly what we're talking about. Eric Lesser, how are you? I'm doing just fine today. Thanks very much, Bonnie. And Nathan, very interesting. I just saw Whiplash the other night um, (laughs) and found it to be a fascinating movie as well. Um, it was one of those things where, you know, couldn't sleep, got up, turned on a movie, never seen it before, and was instantly hooked. So, uh, again, a very interesting movie. Well, there's a good uh, showing up at the right place at the right time to talk to Nathan about the movie. <laughs> and, and I'm going to find out, you know me, Eric, do you think I would enjoy it? Do you think I'd be uh, not sleeping for the rest of the night? What do you think? No, I definitely think it's worth seeing. Um, you know, it, it is violent and it is abusive, but it talks about pushing people. And, you know, at what point does pushing people over the line go too far? Um, but, it, you know, it's interesting that we talk about this whole idea of people and it comes back in cyclical nature. I mean, if we look at where we are, at least in the U.S., from an unemployment rate right now, all of a sudden we're starting to hear more and more discussions about the you know war for talent again about uh... new generations uh... you know looking for alternatives in different types of careers uh... all of a sudden these discussions are starting to come into play again and it's a very different discussion when you see you know eight and eight percent unemployment versus sort of in the world of four and a half percent unemployment but you know this whole concept of you know betting on people and not on strategies we you know continue to see this over and over again the problem is is that even though we have more transparency about people even though we know more about them we know more of their visibility their skills their capabilities many companies are still operating based on guesswork um, that they uh, compared to you know what they may be doing in the areas of finance or operations or things of this nature, uh, they've only started down this path of really being able to take a quantitative and analytic approach to how they really look at their workforce. Who are they hiring? When are they hiring them? Uh, what are the numbers? What are the capabilities that they have? What are the right developmental strategies, et cetera, et cetera? So, you know, if you're going to be betting on people, you know, you should have a, a, a good sense of what you're betting on. And, and most companies are just starting to begin to, to make inroads in that area. Interesting. Question comes to mind, Eric, and, and I'll pose this to the whole panel, so don't answer it now. But my question is, do you think a lot of the workforce feels that to be engaged, to appear engaged to the management, to the executives, they need to produce a lot of work, meaning volume, a.k.a. quantity, versus doing quality work, which may be more on the on the path of simplification and might not be the perceived quantity i was i was severely reprimanded by by a boss many years ago because i left work at 4:58 p.m. to catch a train home and she came in and left a red lettered note on my desk i was here at 5 where were you 
that's a case of quantity versus quality. And believe me, I was given quality. But we'll just leave that one on the table for for after. I'd like to introduce our third panelist. She's also no stranger to SAP Game Changers Radio. It's Carrie Brown, who is an SAP evangelist and thought leader and vice president of user adoption. And Carrie sent me a quote from somebody I've never heard of. It's Constantine Brancusi, a Romanian sculptor, painter, and photographer, considered a pioneer of modernism and, believe it or not, one of the most influential sculptors of the 20th century. He's actually called the patriarch of modern sculpture. I don't know if you knew that, Carrie. And here's the quote, very simple, four words. Simplicity is complexity resolved. Oh, that's beautiful. Carrie Brown, welcome. How are you today? Good morning, Bonnie. I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for the interesting quote, four little words that pack a punch. How did you find this quote from Brancusi? Well, we've been having so much conversation in the last six months around simplicity and complexity. It's made me go looking for other other people in other times who've been solving similar problems because I don't think complexity is a new problem. I think it's increasingly a different shape of problem with technology versus what a Romanian sculptor would have been dealing with. But it's almost in the same vein of history repeats itself. What can we learn from the past? So I went looking to see what others thought about it. And you can't, I know you sent me a whole bunch of quotes, and I like this one the best because it, it fit the best. So how would you approach this for the workforce today, for our, our issue today about incentivizing and motivating and the metrics by which we measure the productivity and the quality of what the workforce is giving in exchange for their paycheck? Uh, how, how would we add these four words? Would you put these in an employee manual, Carrie? Would you put these on the, on the wall in some kind of an imprinted, beautiful, uh, motivational poster so that people would get it? Well, what do we do with these great words? I think, I think the challenge is how do you, as, as we talked about the other guest speakers, how do you engage your employee base? And, and the Oxford Economic Study that we did has shown that only 13% of employees actually consider themselves to be engaged. And so another analogy to some of the ones we've been talking about is the difference between understanding that you're building a cathedral or just chipping at rock. And engaged employees, all of us included, when they are interested, do better work. So whether or not we're trying to get good work, better work, or great work, the more somebody can see where they play a part, the context and the contribution that they make, is the difference between whether or not they are looking at how to simplify and how to improve the organization or just continuing to do what they've always done. And I think some of that is, is innate in terms of personality, but I think some of that is also learned in terms of culture. And if your organization is creating an opportunity for you to understand and see that contribution, I think that gives rise to greatness and certainly gives rise to goodness. And as I shared with you also, you know, fundamentally I believe people come to work every day wanting to do a good job. I don't think they necessarily succeed every day, but I don't think they come in saying, I think I'm going to do a bad job today. So for leaders and managers to give people a space and a place to do better and the opportunity to identify more opportunities for the organization, I think gives them the chance to be the most constructive and, and productive in the workplace. Thank you very much, Carrie. Great insights. Before I ask all of you the key question of this part of the show, what's in your cup today? What are you drinking? just want to circle back to Nathan and Eric. Any comments on what Carrie added, which is such an interesting quote, simplicity is complexity resolved. Nathan, any thoughts on that one? Well, I guess, uh, you know, a thought on, um, Carrie, what you just mentioned at the end around, um, you know, employees come to work every day, um, you know, wanted you to do a good job. They don't know how the day is going to turn out. And I think, you know, part of what we're missing sometimes is the, the notion that things do vary on a daily basis, right? Um, you know, we're seeing companies try to measure 
some notion of daily sentiment of how their employees are feeling. Um, I've seen some companies, you know, when you log in your computer, you have uh, a set of different smiley faces, right, that you choose how you're feeling today. Now, I'd say that's probably going a little bit overboard, but this notion of um, feelings and performance vary on a very regular basis, um, I think, is, is reality, right, versus living in a world of, well, uh, this person shows up. Um, I know they're a great performer. They're going to do a great job every day. Well, we don't know what's going on, right, either at home or in that person's mind. I think digging into it is taking it a little too far, but I know some companies have been looking at that lately. Mm, interesting. Okay, getting a little bit like whiplash, perhaps there. Eric Lesser, <laughs> I know you want. I know you want to comment. What are you thinking? Sure. No, I think it's important to understand things like engagement, but it's probably even more important to understand issues around how does this link to other things? How does this link to um, where you're hiring your managers from? How you're developing them? Um, engagement by itself is only sort of, you know, a standalone measure, but it's the power of really understanding engagement is how does it fit with other things that are going on within the organization? Um, Does it have to do with how, you know, whether they're feeling comfortable with, you know, how the store is doing? Does it make a difference on to how the company is doing overall? Does it have to do with uh, whether I've got a new leader in place? So it's the bringing together of different metrics and being able to make those patterns and, and, and correlations that really is where the power of understanding and what you can actually do to better understand and to better act upon what you're hearing from those engagement numbers. Thank you. I have a question for the whole panel. I'm delaying getting to the coffee cup section here because there's a word that's bothering me because I'm not sure how it is defined. The word is engaged. and I know what it means, but Carrie, Eric, Nathan, when you ask an employee or you do a survey to measure engagement, what question do you, if there's one key question you could ask an employee or every employee in an organization, what is the question that you would ask that would give you the definition in their mind of if they are or are not engaged? Do you say, are you having fun on the job? Do you feel part of something bigger? Uh, do you feel you're adding value for your paycheck? Are you loving coming to work? Are you motivated to do a good job? What is the word or what is the phrase we use to ask somebody to tell us if they're engaged or not? Anybody want to answer that? Because I, I really have been wondering about that for a while when I read all these surveys. What are we asking? Sure, Bonnie. Nathan, I'll jump in Carrie. with one suggestion. Please do. Um, it, you know, looking at, do you understand the, the vision and the values and the purpose of your organization, and do you see where you fit in? So the, the do you know where you fit in question is really, and do you think you, you make a contribution? So though that, that understanding your place and seeing that you have a place, to me, is understanding that you've got a purpose and a, and a contribution to that, and that's engagement. Thank you very much. I was wondering, and I like the answer. Nathan, any comments on that one? Or Eric? Gosh, Bonnie, that's a that, that's a loaded question, but I'll take a stab at it. I think if yeah. you know if we were able to figure that out, and there was one question that we could ask um, that would answer it, um, Gallup's Q12 would probably be a Q1. But it, you know, it's obviously <laughs> a a multifaceted um, construct that we're trying to measure. You know, I think mm-hmm. kind of on building off of Carrie's comments, uh, one of the really questions that we've seen driving engagement um, the most within our company and other organizations is, do you have a chance to do your best at work every day? Right? So there's a, ah. there's a number of elements that are embedded in that. So yes. are you doing what you love? Are you contributing to the organization? To Carrie's point, do you know where you fit in? Um, are you playing to your strengths? 
there's there's questions that you can ask that could probably get at a few different components of engagement the way we think about it. Thank you. All great answers. Eric, got to get you in on this party. What do you think? Yeah, sure. I think there's one other dimension, which is you know similar to the dimension that you would have if you were talking to customers in a net promoter score, which is, would you recommend this place as a place to, to actually come to work to others on a day-to-day basis? Would you, mm. you know, do you believe that you should, you know, that the environment that you're in right now um, is something that you would find, you know, others to be, to be a good environment for them as well? Thank you very much. Great answers. And thank you for helping me build the definition. I was wondering, this survey said 31.32579% of employees in 2014 said they're engaged. I was wondering, what question did you ask them? Okay, great. Nathan Sloan, you're up first. We're up to the what's in your cup today. What are you drinking right now or what do you wish you were drinking segment? So you know the drill. Send me, tell me something interesting about Nathan Sloan. What are you drinking? Well, Bonnie, I'll tell you what, this weekend I was getting a little nervous because I came down with a little bit of a cold and you know, I wasn't able to, to talk much on Saturday and Sunday, although my, my wife wasn't too disappointed in that. But, you know, of course, I, <laughs> I'm sure I picked something up on an airplane or from uh, one of my two wonderful children. But anyway, I, you know, I confided in my on-call physician known as Google Search to see what should I do to help potential laryngitis. So, you know, here, here's the options they gave me. Eucalyptus oil licorice root, ginger root and marshmallow herb, couch grass and slippery elm, or tea with lemon and honey. So given that I'm in Seattle this this morning and my two-block walk from the hotel to the office, I passed probably no less than 10 coffee locations, five of which were Starbucks. I had to stop at a Starbucks, get a tea, hot tea with some lemon, um, and enjoy some of the, the cool weather that we're having here in Seattle this morning. So that's that's what I'm drinking today, Bonnie. Uh, I hope you're feel, feeling better. You sound great. And by the Thank way, you. I just Googled marshmallow root, and apparently herbwisdom.com says it's a type of <laughs> herb known scientifically as al- – uh, Carrie knows I love to look things up on the air. Marshmallow uh, known scientifically as althea, that's A-L-T-H-A-E-A, officinalis is an African plant with short, roundish leaves and small something. And you can buy marshmallow root in 480 milligram capsules at Amazon on Nature's Way. I rest my case. Of Thank you. Never, you <laughs> never heard of that. Interesting. Marshmallow yeah. root. Okay. I, I don't think you toasted over an open campfire, but that sure conjures up pictures of summer and s'mores to me. Eric Lesser, what are you drinking? Uh, peppermint tea this morning. Um, one thing I've noticed in my house is we have no coffee drinkers in our house. There is only tea, tea, and more tea in our house today. Um, we have a coffee maker somewhere. I don't know where it is. We'd have to dig it up if we ever had house guests. Uh, more likely or not, we'll probably take them down to the local Dunkin' Donuts here and uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, because uh, unfortunately finding coffee in this household is a difficult thing to find. Uh, well, I love peppermint tea as well, and I usually order it if I'm not ordering a, a decaf with an emphasis on decaf cappuccino in a restaurant. After a really good dinner, I will order peppermint tea. And the funny thing is, Eric, I'll ask for, do you have mint tea? And the waiter always comes back and says, no, but we have peppermint tea. <laughs> and I, I, I kid you not, this happens 99.9% of the time when they ask for mint. We don't have mint tea, but we have peppermint tea. Is that okay? And I just smile and say, that's delightful. Thank you very much. Never go further than that, but they are engaged in their job. Thank you. Enjoy your tea. Carrie Brown, what drink is thou? I am drinking a smoothie that I made at home because I am happily at my home office, so I get the opportunity to take care of me a little bit better when I'm on the road. 
So I have kale and blueberries and apple and lemon and mint, and I think that's it today. Oh, and a peach, a Georgia peach, because I live in Georgia and peaches are in season. Oh, nice. Tell me, do you steam your kale first or is it raw when you put it in the smoothie? Frozen raw. Ooh. I buy it fresh and stick it in the freezer so it's always ready. Super healthy. I applaud you. All interesting <laughs> drinks. As Carrie and Eric know, they only let Bonnie have water on radio show days. No caffeine. But I'm drinking water from a, uh, a filtered Brita container and a very pretty glass because that's important to me while I'm on the radio. And I have a green straw from yesterday because yesterday we did a show about money, a financial excellence show. So I used a green straw and it's still here today. I rest my case. Guess what? We're talking today to Nathan Sloan at Deloitte. And a shout out to all our good friends at Deloitte, including Carla Neal and Amanda Bush and all the wonderful people over there who bring great people like Nathan to our shows. Eric Lesser, IBM Institute of Business Value. Gl- delighted to have you back. Carrie Brown, you're just a regular here. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Our topic today is on a future of work theme. Are your metrics and incentives rewarding complexity or simplification? Big topic. We're going to dive in even more when we come back after the break. And a shout out to Wilson Zhu or Zhu. I'm not sure how to pronounce it after all this time, but he's one of my favorite SAP Game Changers Radio Sponsors does a great job putting together extraordinary panels like the one we have today. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We are witnessing a monumental shift in the way work and business are done. Leaders are looking to radically simplify their organizations while simultaneously engaging and empowering employees to achieve more. These leaders are also seeking to leverage exciting innovations born from interactions between people, businesses, and things in our newly responsive and intelligent, hyper-connected, networked global economy. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how leaders and their teams can help shape the future of change. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to transforming your business with Game Changers. Here we are, and we have Wilson tweeting his tootsies off here at hashtag SAPRADIO if you want to see how he's capting, capturing the words of wisdom of my three panelists, go to hashtag SAP Radio. Follow the thread and please send us your tweets as well. We'll read them on the air if they're part of, if they make sense and part of our conversation. So we're here at the roundtable segment of the show and Nathan Sloan has agreed to kick off the roundtable. Nathan, I'm looking at your notes and I see some interesting comments here. Of course, everybody's comments are interesting, but let's start here. You say differentiating rewards based on performance is always going to be part subjective and part objective, the key is to have the most reliable measures possible in place. Why don't you get us started, Nathan Sloan? Go ahead. Sure. Happy to, Bonnie. 
No, it's it's interesting in this in this world of um, reinventing performance management, as a lot of companies are struggling with this topic today. And many times we have the conversations with um, our our clients, and they say, "Well, we don't like our performance management process. We need to figure out a way to make it completely objective." And you know, I I, I kind of chuckle at that because any type of of measure when somebody is is measuring some somebody else, unless you can count it it's going to be subjective, right? So, of course, there's going to be objective measures when we look at performance in terms of um, the number of widgets that you produce. If you're in a sales role, there's things that you can count. So those would be objective measures. But there will always be some level of subjectivity in how we look at and evaluate performance. And that's really what we hire our managers to do. Every day they're making subjective judgments and decisions based on their experience, what they know, um, how they view the performance of others. The question is, how do you get measures that are as reliable as possible? You know, many many companies have looked at doing away with uh, performance ratings as a whole, I think mainly because the way that those processes have run is, you know, at the end of the year, you'll look at um, how do we get to one number, right, to summarize somebody's performance versus mm-hmm. thinking about how do we gather performance information throughout the year? How does it continuous? How do we give people information so they understand how they're performing? Um, but what's also interesting is that in this world of data and measurement and the availability of, of more metrics, most companies are doing away with ratings. And now mm-hmm. some of those companies are still coming back and saying, well, gosh, we don't have any measurement in place to help us make some of these decisions. We're asking managers to decide how to reward people and differentiate compensation based on the performance they see. But I do think we're, we're missing an opportunity to embed better measurement within the process uh, versus the old way that I think we'd all agree we need to move away from. Mm, good insights. Eric Lesser, thoughts? Please? Yeah, I still think there, I, I agree with Nathan on the fact that this whole issue of performance measurement and, and individual rankings is certainly something that we hear a lot about from clients. But we also hear a lot about this notion about how do you distinguish high performance from average performance? Um, and, and more importantly, what are the qualities that support high performance uh, versus average performance? Because I think when it comes to issues around how do I identify the right people I want to bring into my organization? What types of learning programs do I want to invest in? All of that has to be geared towards, am I getting the right people in the right fit in the right roles? And more and more, we're starting to see companies starting to think about these issues and say, okay, is there a way that I can get a better handle? How do I move beyond just simple guesswork to be able to make those kinds of evaluative decisions? So, of course, every metric that you have can be argued against. Um, There are always going to be inconsistencies and biases and difficulties in being able to capture relevant data. Um, But the key is how do we develop at least meaningful enough proxies that we can start to say, okay, these are the characteristics that really do differentiate performance um, when dealing with a specific role or specific opportunity. Um, and then how do I go back and compare that against other skills and capabilities in trying to find and being able to match people, whether they're from outside the organization or whether we're trying to make internal matches, how do we differentiate that kind of performance? Thank you. Carrie Brown, thoughts? 
My thoughts really, Bonnie, go to a combination of things, to the subjective and the objective. I think organizations are also looking not only at the objective of the, the what people do, but also the how. And some of that, I think, is coming from the changing in the workplace in terms of the demographics and the expectations of organizations and the need to focus on retention as well as performance. So if I look inside SAP, for example, we've looked at reshaping what are the definitions of how we do work and making it something more tangible and uh, relatable. So, you know, I tell it like it is, stay curious, embrace differences, keep the promise, you know, build bridges, not silos. So there are things about how we behave versus just what we do. And that really has, has been for us, and I've seen in a lot of other clients, a focus on how do people function at work, which leads sort of back to that engagement and and participation at work, which leads to performance. So it's really a holistic piece. If you just look at the what we do, it's very impersonal, and it's hard to make it something that mm-hmm. feels valued and, and and honored and desired in an organization. So it really does need to be a combination. Bonnie, one of the things that I want to just yeah. uh, relate to mm-hmm. that, you, that you brought up earlier is this notion yes. of how do you focus on output rather than perception. Yes. Um, you had said before this whole idea about walking out the door in 458 um, and being reprimanded for it. Um, you know, this is still an issue that we see in, in many organizations, and, and we mm-hmm. see this especially when you're dealing with some of the generational differences. Yes. Um, I, I think especially with the, with the millennial generation, the types of flexibility in saying, okay, um, I, I may want to do my work in an office, I may want to do my work at home, I may want to do it in a coffee shop, but the fact is I'm going to get my work done, and, and how that work gets done may be a very different view from someone else is doing it. Um, so understanding, you know, what's the true output, what's the expectation versus what is the perception of how that work is getting done, I think is also a very important issue. Completely Thank agree. You. And given that the, the largest growing part of the workforce is the contingent workforce who are virtual, whether they're specifically connected to the organization or not, that, that output focus and the outcomes focus, I, I absolutely agree, is making it more about the measurement and then the how you get about it can vary. Interesting. Uh, I just have to have a side note here in case anybody is thinking badly of me for leaving at 458. Uh, they fired the rest of the marketing department, brought me in and said, you're doing it all. I was doing the job of two and a half to three people. They had me writing the annual report because they didn't want to pay an outside writer. I was doing things that were triple the level at which I was hired, and I still couldn't leave at 458. I just wanted to clear my good name here in case anybody's saying, well, Barney, you shouldn't have left at 458. So I think we cleared that one. There was quality and definitely quantity. I have a question for the whole panel. What about, two, two issues are on my mind before we, we go into some of Eric's talking points. One is um, quotas. I was once told by a manager, well, your performance is great, but we're only allowed to have two people in this group who are, or are pegged as outstanding who will get the biggest raise or the biggest bonus or whatever. And we already have so many people in the group, but we're not allowed to say you're all outstanding. So we have to now start grading within the grading system. That really bothered the heck out of me. Anybody have a comment on that kind of a response from management to employees? What do you think, Eric? Bonnie, this is Nathan. Nathan, yeah. (laughs) We've we've tackled this question uh, a number of times, especially over the last six months with organizations thinking about this, you know, notion of a forced distribution, right? And I think yes. in some cases, companies are fooling themselves by thinking that that forced distribution that they've predefined is 
a true distribution of performance in the organization, but really it's not, right? It's what you're seeing is you're really just seeing the policy that you've outlined before that process. So if you said that only two people can be outstanding, that's what you're going to see. And I think a lot of the research out there is showing that performance is not necessarily normally distributed in an organization, right? And especially high-performing organizations, which you would assume are hiring the best, keeping the best. And so the question then is, to your point, how do you differentiate within those buckets? And that's when it comes down to what is the manager's role? And then to Eric's point, are there measures that we can put in place to really get true differentiation at the individual and team level, which I think we can. Thank you. Any comments from Eric or Carrie on that quota question? And I love the term force distribution. That's a new one for me. Any comments from either one of you? Everybody uh, I do if you don't, Eric. I, I would also echo the comment Nathan made. You're going to get what you ask for. So to your yeah. point, Bonnie, where you said it was highly frustrating to you, it's highly frustrating to the person who's in that situation and so becomes highly demotivating. So if you're told that you don't get to be outstanding, you're immediately going to readjust and, and become what you got told you are, which is less than outstanding. So it really, I, I think it takes a courageous leader to challenge that force distribution and say, this is where my team really is at, and this is the performance that they're giving, and this is the reward or the compensation that matches to that. And if, if that's not the bar that you want to have as an organization, then change the bar, but don't tell somebody that they don't deserve it if they've already achieved the outcomes. Thank you. Great points. And uh, the other question, I said I had two. One was quotas. The other is personality of the manager. And somebody brought up the word bias a few minutes ago. It might have been Eric, I think. Uh, Bias of the manager is something I think that goes under the radar where a manager makes qualitative decisions, subjective decisions on evaluating performance, and it's their biases. How were they treated when they were not a manager? How were they treated in other companies? What did they think is fair? Is there any way at all for, for organizations, big organizations, to get inside of these biases and basically say to a manager, put aside whatever happened to you and put aside what your mood is that day and let's really stick to the standards we feel are best for employee engagement. Anybody have a a comment on that? I'd love to hear how do you get past this deeper subjectivity, meaning manager individual bias. Anybody, Eric? I I think, I mean, you know, being everyone being human and coming from their own set of backgrounds, you know, innately comes from things at a different viewpoint. I I think what's a challenge, and this is sort of one of these these classic management challenges, has always been the delivery of feedback, is how do you deliver constructive feedback um, to an employee in a way that enables them to improve their performance further? And unfortunately, for many corporations and, and organizations, um, not only are the, the timing set up to do that appropriately, we often you know, have discussions about improvement and performance all at the same time and, and, and you know, goal achievement, but rather, how do we start to give you know, feedback into smaller chunks? How do we do it on a more regular basis? How do we enable managers to take the time to do that? I, I think that's one of the, the classic management struggles that we've always seen, is how do you deliver feedback in the meaningful chunks, especially in a generation that has grown up now with more rapid types of assessment and feedback, um, in a way that's meaningful employees and is meaningful to the larger group. Thank you. Anybody else? 
Carrie, Nathan? It's interesting. Yep. The, the research has shown exactly that. So millennials as well as high performers would like feedback up to as often as monthly in some formal fashion. And by formal, that doesn't necessarily mean written and, and sitting down, but wanting that you know, touch point on a regular basis. I think the other challenge, too, when you consider this is how do you give feedback back to the manager on their bias? So what we're seeing also as a trend is mm-hmm. the ability for employees to give feedback on their manager. So rather than the manager's always right and the manager can assess you, the ability to send information back upstream, if you will, is the manager meeting expectations? Is the manager actually acting as a manager or is their bias overlaying and skewing the information? And that, that certainly, I think, gives an accountability to everyone at every level in terms mm-hmm. of are they playing the best role they can play to contribute to the organization. Thank you, Carrie. I'm very pleased to hear that. Nathan, any comments on that before I move on? Everybody good? Yeah, Bonnie, I, I guess I would add one comment, yeah, tying, tying back to this notion of engagement that we were talking about before, because mm-hmm. I think this is also where um, we can think about engagement as um, somewhat of a measure that um, should be run in parallel with performance, right? So to, to Carrie's point, when we think about um, manager um, performance and giving upward feedback, now, I think there might be an opportunity for us to look at engagement levels of individuals or departments or teams to figure out, is that a reflection on uh, manager effectiveness? Not that we would necessarily um, hold them extremely accountable for that, but how do we give them a tool to understand what the engagement level is on their team so they understand how their behaviors and feedback are really having an impact. So if, if their team is saying, well, I want more feedback, I need more information, now they're hearing that from their team versus you know, getting that information maybe six or ten months uh, down the road after a, a full employee survey is done across the company. I think there's a way for us to kind of merge this, this notion of performance engagement as tools for leaders as well. Thank you very much, Nathan. I'm going to move into a topic here. I don't think we've covered this yet, Eric. I'm looking at your notes. And and a side note to my panelists, our topic technically is are your metrics and incentives fostering complexity versus simplification? So we're going to have to tie back to those two key words at some point. But I'm loving where the conversation is going because I think this this is what's really on people's minds. Eric Lesser, you say security and privacy issues continue to be important when thinking about workforce analytics. As one executive said, quote, people are not a box of detergent, maybe not a box of chocolates either. Companies need to be able to match their need for information with respect not only for legal considerations, but also provide something back to employees in return. You want to unravel this for me, Eric Lesser? How do we, how do we approach this? Sure. I mean, anytime that you start to get into issues around um, workforce analytics and measuring people and things of this nature, and, and you start trying to match that up against performance and giving people feedback, trying to understand, you know, how data is being collected, especially when you're looking at, you know, different forms of data that people are looking, or let's say, for example, around engagement, when you start looking at issues around social media or with surveys or, or any number of things. The importance is to understand is not only do people want, you know, assurances that, you know, that uh, their data is being, uh, you know, if you will, aggregated and it's not being used for any specific or individual retribution, 
but they also want to understand how is this data being used? What do I get from it? How can I improve my performance? How do I get feedback based on all of this insight that you're collecting? And so more and more as companies are starting to focus on issues such as engagement and employee listening, it's about finding the balance between what people might think of as quote-unquote a creepiness factor but also mm-hmm. their willingness to share their opinions and to do it for not only their own individual improvement, but for the improvement of the organization as a whole. Okay. Carrie, thoughts? I think it goes back to whether or not the accountability is on everybody or just on the employee. And I think some of the exposure factor is if they are could be persecuted, could be challenged, could be, um, you know, impacted in terms of their performance or their opportunity – as versus if everybody has a sort of a, a trusting environment, an open environment where where there is you know accountability by all, and so I think if you're if you're managing to get to where upwards and downwards there's accountability, then there's more likelihood people will be candid because the opportunity is there for improvement, and the the opportunity for everybody to learn and grow exists rather than it being solely you know if I'm the only one speaking, will I be impacted? Thank you, Nathan. Thoughts. Um, yeah, Eric, great point. I think, in, you know, in terms of workforce analytics, many times we're having a conversation around, you know, what does, what does the dashboard need to look like for the manager? What does the dashboard need to look like for the HR organization, for the leadership team? And I think many times uh, we're missing this opportunity to provide a dashboard to the individual. Right? Th- think about the world that we're living in today and these addictive technologies that some of us wear, whether it's a Fitbit or some other device, and you wake up in the morning and you look at your sleep pattern and there's all kinds of different stats and how many steps did I take yesterday. You know, so if we, take a, if we take kind of a lesson from the technology world and think about how do we create a dashboard of metrics that people care about, they understand where do they fall relative to others, and let's stop putting so much onus on HR or leaders and truly put more onus on the individual and give them the data that they need to understand, you know, how are they performing and where do they stand within the organization. Thank you, Eric. I, I Eric, think you one of the things that I'll, ahead, uh, sorry, one thing I think that's really key in the words used there is transparency. Mm-hmm. And, and that transparency and visibility, I think, takes away, one, the burden in HR, but also some of the mystery of performance. I think historically, Performance management and ranking and so forth in many organizations has been either a mystery or quiet or private. And yet when you look at that motivation factor and people fundamentally wanting to do a good job and be rewarded and be recognized, that visibility and that transparency can be very freeing and very opening and and create great opportunity. Thank you. Eric, you want to wrap up on that topic? Because I have something in Kerry's notes I really want to get to on our topic of complexity versus simplicity. Eric? Uh, sure. I, I mean, overall, I think what we're seeing is, is that employees definitely do want a voice out there. They have ideas, they have suggestions, they have opportunities for improvement. And I think companies have the opportunity to leverage that if they can understand that topic, if they can understand and listen to that employee voice, and they can be transparent about what they're doing with it. So I think absolutely there's an opportunity to build engagement through that. Thank you. Carrie Brown, I'm looking at your notes. A couple of key things I'm going to read and have you run with it, and then we'll invite Nathan and Eric to comment. You say complexity 
is a combination of good and bad behaviors. Very few people understand that their own behaviors create complexity or that many sources of complexity are within their own sphere of control. And then you add, simplification in an organization is like when you clean out your closet, you move your house, and all of a sudden you become aware of the surplus of items that you own, items that may be non-value added that drive complexity. Great points on the table. Carrie Bram, why don't you expand this and put it in the context of incentives and metrics at work, please? Certainly. We were having a discussion recently uh, with Bill Jensen, so uh, at Simpleton Bill, around simplicity and complexity and so forth. And part of the dialogue was really looking at how does complexity get created? And the bad behaviors, if you will, are everyone tweaking and finessing and adding and adjusting, but doing it incrementally where, in fact, in many cases, there's layers and layers and layers of what builds complexity through, you know, good intention but bad behavior, where good behavior would be perhaps we should just clean it out and start again, or perhaps we should clean out and just keep what we really need. And so that's really where my analogy of cleaning out your closet comes. You know, when you move or when you clean your closet, you look at, wow, where did all this stuff come from? I didn't even know that I had it. Or certainly I, didn't, I don't need it and so I won't keep it. But typically what you do is you just collect and collect and collect. And only, you know, in the, in the analogy of your closet, you live in the top 10%. Similarly in organizations, you live in the top 10%. And a lot of the activity that's really value-added that really makes a difference to your day-to-day is much less than the, the bureaucracy or the steps that are built in. So when you look at incentives and behaviors, part of it has to be what are you asking for? Um, one of the gentlemen at our company, Jeff Woods, did some work with a uh, car manufacturer, and they were talking with their leadership around simplification in the process. And the dialogue really got to saying, what was the ask? What was the question that you asked of your people? Did you ask them to redesign the process, or did you ask them to improve the process? And when you consider the, asking the right question, so how simple can I make it is different to saying, can I improve it? And that incentives and behaviors, I think, comes back to what are you asking people to do? Are you asking them to truly simplify? And if they could start from scratch, would they, what would they do instead versus how would they tweak what they have now? And so complexity really, in my view, gets built. The bad behaviors are, while with best intent, are layering on top and adding to more complexity or adding more steps versus good behavior you know, being that intention and ideally asking the right question and getting fully to where you can truly have the simplest process that adds the greatest value. Thank you, Carrie. And while you're speaking, I looked up, it came to mind the, the big craze now, the Japanese art of decluttering and organizing. You may have heard that uh, Japanese author Marie Kondo, K-O-N-D-O, has a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And I believe she asks when you look in your closet or your cupboards, and it could be in your processes at work, does it bring you joy? Do you need it? Have you used it recently? So just a little side note there. She's written four books and they've sold millions of copies. Everybody wants to get on this tidying up craze, and maybe that's what we need to think about in terms of complexity at work. Nathan Sloan comments on what Kerry just added. Sure. I'd love to provide some real-life examples, but without getting too personal, I, I, will, I will avoid doing <laughs> oh, that. Oh, go but, ahead. You already told us yeah. what you're drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, to, to Kerry's point, right, you think about when you move, you look at your closet, what things haven't you worn in a year, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, we're just, we're, we're, we're a society where we accumulate, and, and that plays into the work world as well, where we try to simplify a process, but yet we continue to add things, new metrics, new pieces of the process, and we don't look at 
how can we really define a continuous improvement um, portion to the way that we're looking at talent programs, talent processes, right? There's an in- initiative to simplify things, but we also have to have a discipline that we're always going to be constantly improving so that we're not just adding additional complexity year after year and, you know, five years from now, we clean out our closet and take things to goodwill, right? We need to be doing that on an ongoing basis. Thank you. Eric Lesser, thoughts? I'm going to take a slightly different view on this. Um, I'm going to say that actually complexity is not going to go away anytime in the near future. Um, if you think about, you know, we mentioned before about the various types of work arrangements that we have now uh, in terms of contingent workers, temporary workers, part-time workers, uh, different work arrangements. If we look at the continuous growth of ecosystems, that companies recognizing that they can't deliver a service by themselves, that they need to work with two, three, four, X number of companies that are out there, it's changing the nature of complexity. So it may not be one very deep, very dark closet anymore, but now it's multiple closets, and it may be a closet, it may be a storage room, it may be a storage room, and it may be something else. So I think part of the recognition is, is that things will continue to become more complex, whether it's going to the solution to that is more rapid um, you know, decluttering or whether it's about being more organized and where you put things in the first place. There are lots of potential answers, but I think for the most part it's more about how do we adapt to continued co- complexity rather than just simply trying to eliminate it because I don't think it's eliminatable. I, I agree that it's, I agree that it's not completely eliminatable. I think the question is, can we have clarity and can we have easy navigation through that complexity? So I agree with you that it will continue to become, you know, an, an ever-evolving landscape. But the, to me, the the possibility, the opportunity is, how do you remove non-value-added steps and non-value-added activity that make that navigation that much more difficult mm-hmm. and challenging and costly? And I think Thank there's one other angle that we can bring into this also, is, which is the r- rise of what you keep hearing about issues like machine learning and cognitive computing, which is... You know what, Eric? That's look- another topic. Eric, we're, we are four minutes from the end of the show. I love the topic. Send me an email. Let's get that on Coffee Break with Game Changers. You just bought yourself a new show, okay? We have come to the time where we've got to do our predictions round. I can't wait to hear what all of you have to say. Nathan Sloan, I'm giving you exactly 45 seconds for predictions. Fast forward the conversation if you like to do your 2020 or any time in the future. What will we be saying about metrics and incentives, rewarding complexity, or simplification at work? Nathan Sloan, 45 seconds at Deloitte. Go. Thanks, Bonnie. Well, given that I can barely see beyond this week, it's going to be hard for me to go out to 2020. But I would say, you know, building off of what uh, both Carrie and Eric said, we're, we're going to see much more complexity in terms of the talent models that are out there. We're going to be looking at machines as talent. And I think, quite honestly, in this notion of a sharing economy, we may see that companies don't own their employees anymore, right? So then we'll have the question around what metrics should they be using and who are they rewarding and who do they truly own as talent within their organization? And I think we're going to see that changing a fair amount. And so there may be communities that own some of these groups and companies may not own employees like they do today. Interesting. Okay, good point. Thank you, Eric Lesser, IBM. Talk to me. Let's give you 45 seconds. Predictions, go. Well, again, I think this whole area of complexity is going to be about how do you 
obtain visibility into the complexity, and how do you leverage the use of different tools to help augment judgment? So if it's becoming increasingly more difficult to make judgments about what's going on in the world, how do you leverage different types of tools, different types of approaches to first, A, understand those problems, and then B, break them down into points that people can actually go out and digest? Thank you. We want to digest well. Carrie Brown, SAP, 45 seconds. Predictions, go, please. I think what we're going to see is organizations and people reinventing things the way that we knew them. So if you take Uber and it's completely reinvented transportation, that same kind of you know, process hack, life hack, work hack has totally changed an entire industry. And so I think when you look at incentives and behaviors, we will see people coming up with solutions to how to get directly to the source of what they need to do and reward without going through such an arduous process that we've experienced to where we can really clearly connect with that audience that we don't own in a way that we know they're being productive and they feel fulfilled as well. Thank you, Carrie. Wonderful as always. I have a quick note for Nathan. You mentioned about the sharing economy. Quick quote coming up on our show. In one hour, I'll be back with Business Innovation with Game Changers. Here's a quote from Tom Goodwin. Uber, the world's largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the world's most popular media owner, owns no content, creates no content. Alibaba, the most valuable retailer, has no inventory. Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, owns no real estate. Something interesting is happening, and that's Tom Goodwin. I'm not sure who he is, but I'm going to look it up before the show. So, Nathan, there's something to chew on. Thank you, Nathan Sloan at Deloitte. Hope you feel better. You didn't have laryngitis today. Eric Lesser at IBM. Thank you, Kerry Brown at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We're out of time. Shout out to this series sponsor, Becky Weber at SAP and Wilson Jew. You are wonderful. Z-H-U, the Z-H-U at, uh, that's his handle on Twitter. Thanks for the great quotes, Brad and the Business Channel team for thanks for getting us on the air. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. See you in another hour. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, right now. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.